Hello and welcome to Man on the Clapper Omnibus Sport Review. Today I'm going to do an entry level guide into baseball, really following on from my previous podcast for the love of the game. It's I'm really going to sort of delve into the history and some of the sort of the cultural importance that baseball has in American history. I'm going to talk about some of the famous players, some of the famous teams, maybe, you know, even go into some of the positions and really give you a, a sort of glimpse into you know, really why it is such an important game. In many ways, baseball has more of a sort of cultural footprint than any of the other traditional American sports. So we talk about ice hockey, basketball and American football. They're all very important and they all tell a different part of US history. But baseball has a... Due to the, the length of time the game has been played and when the game originally came into mass appeal speaks so importantly into what makes America American and what makes Americans Americans is that even if it's now no longer the most popular sport in America, that's American football by a, a fairly clear distance in terms of you know, attendance, television viewership, baseball still has that cultural impact that American football doesn't really have. So the simplest place to really start is where does baseball come from? Now, in colonial America, you had many different bat ball games. So cricket did have a small footprint, but it never really truly developed into anything close to a national game. Now, historically, the first ever test match was played between Canada and America. It wasn't England. It, the first sort of test match, multi-day, it was Canada versus America. So it did have an importance, and even up until the 20th century, there is a sort of flourishing cricket scene in Philadelphia. It was kind of an upper crust, you know, fairly important people liked the game, and it had, you know, quite a strong footprint there. But it never it expanded. There, there was a very famous uh, American touring team in the, <clears throat> I believe it's the maybe early 20s, maybe late, maybe early 1910s or early 1920s. I'll have to double-check that. Anyway, they went across and toured and played against all of the, the counties and other important sides in England. And one of the lowest ever first-class averages for wickets was actually an American. So there was there was success, but it never really took hold, and it didn't take hold in colonial America. And that's, there's a lot of very good reasons for it in terms of the amount of space that you would require, the amount of players that you would need on a team, the equipment, none of that was really available in colonial America, or nor the organisation or the communications that would allow the game to spread in the same way that it was able to in Britain, in terms of, you know, you get Kent playing against Surrey, village against village, town against... It was e a lot easier for cricket to develop because there was more links between, you know, different towns. And really, I mean, when you're talking about cricket, a lot of the time it was really based around the pub. So you'd have the pub, but then you'd have the sort of a huge sort of green space behind the pub, which would you need for the animals, for you know, storage. And that allowed basically for cricket fields to have be a place where people gathered. So you'd gather at the, you know, the public house, you would watch the game, you would bet on the game, and it allowed, you know, it created a sort of a system. 
So in other words, the landlord, you know, of the pub would play, you know, would allow the players on there, and it would, there was an economic incentive. None of that existed in America. So it's far more, and due to the, the harshness of, of the colonial experience, so you were dealing with Indians, you were dealing with weather, you were dealing with animals, there wasn't really the sort of time, or even maybe the inclination, to engage in, in organised sport. So really, there was many different bat and ball games that were sort of played in the you know, priest pre-revolutionary war era but mostly it was a children's game it was you know children were the ones that were able to play so you're talking rounders and something called town ball which is you know really sort of progenitor for baseball it and there was other sort of different sub games all of which really were involved in a bat and ball catching running throwing and and one of my favourite things is that virtually all the major sort of Massachusetts towns and village all ended up having on their charters and on their law books get banning children from playing these games in the centre, in sort of what would effectively be Main Street, because of the damage to windows, businesses, and just generally, you know, flying balls and flying children. From there, town ball really, it's... It spreads, but each different locality, municipality, state, all of these places all have different rules, different amount of game, different amount of players, different spaces. It was very localised and it was very unorganised. In other words, you could walk from one village and it'd be played in one way. The next village along would have almost completely separate rules. The only thing that you could really sort of tie it all together was that there was a bat and a ball and throwing and catching. And the tradition, or the traditional origin story of baseball says that there was a town ball game being played by some college students. And Abner Doubleday, a student there, sat upon watching this game on, a, on the stub of a cut-down tree and he decides, we need some rules for this game. So he sits there and there and then writes out the rules which would become baseball. And then Abner Doubleday would graduate and enlist in the Union Army, rise to become a general and become a Civil War hero. And from then, baseball then started to spread and became the game it is today. That is 110% a complete myth. It never happened. They have gone over everything that Abner Doubleday did, read, wrote. He wasn't there at that time when this game was supposed to be played. He virtually never mentioned baseball in any of his correspondence. It never happened. But what was more, for me, what's more important is why the myth sprung up. And there's, there's many different sort of reasons, but the simplest way of putting it is that there was a, just a powerful desire for there to be a uniquely American backstory to this sport. They didn't want there to be a colonial historical arc to it. They didn't want baseball to have somehow in some way shape or form have come from britain england they didn't want it from the old country they didn't want it to say oh this came out of a you know rounders because you know obviously in this country rounders is seen again as a very it's a, ch a sport for children it's played by in tom brown in tom brown's school days but obviously the next step is you then go into cricket and it then links it in a way that really what they wanted was uh, and a, not just an American backstory, but in a way that 
made baseball uniquely American. So, and it comes, there's lots of different sort of cultural strands to this. So it presents Doubleday as a, an American hero, imposing order on a chaotic scene. You know, it's really sort of, in a way, a metaphor for the pioneer spirit, in the sense that, and it's also an element of individualism. It's only Doubleday that's out of all the people and all of who played this game for 60, 70, 80 years since, you know, Americans first picked up a ball and a bat in Massachusetts in you know, some of the early you know, villages and towns of colonial America. And it was only him that then basically had came up with the, 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 the practical compromise of this needs rules, this needs an organisation so that everyone is playing the same sort of sport. And it, you know, it really in some ways speaks to uh, an American ideal of promise and also to an extent an element of sort of meritocracy from which professional baseball then rises from it. And it also speaks to the element of heroicism and it then links in the American Civil War because really baseball, as a, as a sport, it has a wonderful capacity to unite people in very disparate and very and difficult times. So, for example, you see the huge, not quite expanse, but baseball surges in popularity straight after the end of the Second World War. And if you compare it, there's a similar situation that happened in cricket in Britain in the 1950s. And really what it is, is that these games that have their a backstory of and a history of timelessness, something that takes you back, and it has a very powerful attraction to people when you've been through rough times. So in other words, Britain of the 1950s, I mean, I know I've read that there was some quite magical summers in the mid-50s, is that you'd had a long period of, you know, difficulties off the wall. You still had rationing. And so the idea of having a sort of these endless summers where you'd go and watch the cricket and you would be taken away from all of the sort of problems that you'd had, the bombings, the world wars, the depression in the inter, in, in the interwar years. And so it had a very powerful effect on people and it made the game more popular and it probably really was. So by the time you get to the 1960s, that feeling is dissipated. You have a new generation who aren't as Im impacted by the war. They're not defined by it. And so as a result, that, that popularity fades. And it fades a little bit in America, but baseball is still hugely popular. So there's always a view a lot of people have of baseball in the 1950s of being this kind of halcyon era. And it's the same thing really applies to baseball when you're talking about the American Civil War. After the, I mean, the American Civil War was just devastating. I mean, it devastated every single last pocket of, of America. So the South was just utterly destroyed, economically, you know, infrastructurally, it was just devastating. And there was a huge amount of change that came out of it. You had people migrating north, but even in the north, which, relatively speaking, had been untouched by the actual physical elements of the war. In other words, the South only ever really came into Virginia. It... Until a little bit, you could say it came near enough to Ohio, Kentucky, but it never quite ever really broached that far outside of that. And that was really the kind of border between the Confederacy and the Union. But the actual physical side of it, in terms of the population. So you have, you know, I mean, eventually they ended up having to change the actual 
way how they were recruiting. Because of the, what there was happening is, is that you'd have these local battalions and local companies, they'd be thrown into this mechanised warfare, and it was so destructive is that literally in the space of ten minutes on a battlefield, an entire village and an, could lose every single one of their able-bodied men in the space of just seconds. And the, the devastation. There were some villages that just never recovered because there was simply nobody, you know, no men there. So all the families were just were dispersed. And that, and that was as far, you know, you're talking about Maine, you know, which couldn't be any more further away from, you know, um, yeah, further away from the battlefields of predominantly the South. And so baseball was a way of, of getting away from that, that fact and away from some of the, the political you know, difficulties that came from Reconstruction, the assassination of Abraham Lincoln, any number of different things. Even in the war itself, baseball was one of the things that really united people. Both sides, you know, both armies loved the game. I mean, there's one very famous story that's um, told in um, Ken Burns' um, documentary about baseball, where basically they were all, you know, they were, you know, the Union soldiers were playing this baseball game and they get, you know, essentially discover upon a, you know, Confederate battalion and essentially everyone flees, but the centre fielder is the one that gets caught and taken prisoner because he's the furthest one away from everybody else. And there was a huge thing. I mean, there was always a deep n desire to get, you know, equipment, so bats, balls. And that's the same for the South, which, of course, it was much more difficult because they were really cut off from the rest of the US. And in the South, within about, you know, sort of 18 months to two years, getting any, any kind of food, paper, just any kind of supply. So baseball was played a huge sort of role in... In some ways, uniting a country that, after the end of the Civil War, had be, was extremely divided. But really, to get back to the sort of Abner Doubleday mythology, is that by putting him in upstate New York, there was an element that, a lot of the time, one of the, the I think, the, the simplest and easiest ways to sort of understand American history is through the, sort of almost the concept of the... Jeffersonian America, which is, you know, rural, agriculture, you know, very small towns, villages, contrasted with the Hamiltonian view of America. So it's commercial, urban, city-based. You know, it is commerce and finance. And both of those two threads are, you know, sort of tied up into America. And it's tied up in the Constitution and the way how the... the government was imagined by the framers. So you have Jefferson on one side, you know, trying to argue for decentralization. So, you know, essentially it's far more individualistic, whereby Hamilton is far more concept of centralizing. So the, the need for a central bank, the need for America as a whole to be more united, not to be disparate states linked together, but to be actually what would eventually become a full country, which kind of brings you vaguely onto Manifest Destiny, which doesn't need to be touched at this point in, in the podcast. And so baseball becomes that kind of link. So the actual true real story about the creation of baseball is really fascinating and interesting, but it couldn't have been told at that time because it didn't have the same feel. There's an element of sort of 
politicisation about it is that really, essentially, you had all of these, as I've said, these disparate games that were played. And in New York City, you had a collection of clerks, uh, firefighters, all these different kind of occupations, and they all came together and sort of started playing, you know, town ball. And eventually they started to sort of codify some of the rules. So in other words, how long the bases were, how many balls were between strikes, equipment sizes, the amount of players on a team, and they're called the um, Knickerbocker team. And eventually they start playing these games, on, really amongst themselves. And basically, because there wasn't that many, even in that period in New York City history, it was still, it was rapidly urbanising. In other words, you're talking about really these sort of 1860s, 1870s. Well, actually, maybe, sorry, 1850s, 1860s, and a little bit into the 1870s. So, at that time, New York City had just gone gone this absolutely epic and very quick and very disorganised building run. In other words, really, if you think of New York City in the 1830s, it is just all these disparate little towns and villages, all sort of vaguely strung around, and it was a sort of place where you could just walk to work. But if you were in one end of New York City... You'd walk, and then, you know, for about an hour, it would just be countryside, and then you'd get into the sort of city, which is really what was sort of New Amsterdam when it was originally constructed by the Dutch. By the time you get to 1850, that has all changed. It is just urban sprawl, and the population has doubled, trebled, and it's very disorganised. There isn't much green space. So if you want to go out and enjoy a bit of countryside, what you would do is you'd get on a sort of barge, and you'd go across the river into New Jersey, and there was this, this place called the Elysian Fields. It was, you know, meadows, greenery, and lots of people in New York would go there and play games and various things. So the Knickerbockers started to play, and people just started to watch. Just out of just pure curiosity, Ooh, what, are these, what are these men doing? And you know, more and more people tend to watch. And as the game became more and more sort of organised, they eventually end up on, you know, let's have a friendly. And they play against some cricketers. And that's really the start of, of modern baseball. It's That's where, once you start codifying the rules and teams playing against other teams, it creates, you know, just the, the proto. And... And eventually the crowds get so big that they just sort of pen a little bit of land off. And they start charging for entry. And then, boom, before you know it, within, you know, less 5, 10, 15 years, you've got something close to, you know, professional baseball. And But it's very much sort of Hamiltonian. It's city clerks. It's office workers and, you know, creating this game. It doesn't really have a Jeffersonian type of America. It doesn't, you know, that part of baseball's history becomes then part of colonial history. So it doesn't become as, as American. It doesn't really speak to the idea. I mean, you have to understand is that we're looking back on this with a very definitive idea of what America is, what it stands for. Whereby when you're talking about the, you know, the people that first sort of propagated the Adam Doubleday myth, you're talking about a almost a generation where literally they could remember a time when there was no guarantees that there would be an America. There was a possibility that you would have a North and South, that there would be a border and that the whole place would have broken apart. You still had you know, vast expanses of the West that were you know, in the process of being populated. But there was no guarantees that that would then become 
America. You still had, you know, Utah that wasn't a state. It it wasn't America wasn't as whole as it is now, obviously. So the idea of, of using baseball and as it's a real cultural touchstone. So in a way that's something that America has created and that it has these links to you know, the Civil War and the, the Union winning and America becoming whole again with the Confederate states putting down arms and becoming American again. And that's Abner Doubleday become, playing a heroic role in that, having already, you know, codified America, you know, sorry, codified baseball and in a way codifying American culture as a result of it. And so it's an argument where eventually baseball becomes part of the American dream is that it is, you know, heroes, individualism, making this sport. And whereby, whereby cricket never had that kind of backstory. It was an English sport. So whereby, if you look at the sort of the colonial history of cricket, what you have is a very powerful feel that the Australians, the South Africans, the Indians, they all want to beat, England. They all want to prove themselves to the mother country that they can play this game and that they can, you know, as a way of it links it links the, the countries together but in a way that is that is competitive. Whereby America doesn't have that they didn't have that desire. The reason they, they don't really jump on cricket in the same way is that they don't have that historical need to basically get on a boat, go to England and smash England at Lords. Because in a way they had, you know, they had won their freedom in seventeen seventy five. They didn't need to win their freedom at Lords or beating England at the SCG, the MCG, or beating them in you know, Mumbai. It doesn't have that same feel. And that's why baseball had to have this kind of American backstory. And it had to have uh, sort of strands of it that had links to, you know, the Jeffersonian part of you know, rural America. But now we know the, the truth. It's the, the actual story of the Knickerbockers becomes really interesting in of itself because it's a bottom-up situation. It really is. A bunch of friends coming up with a sport that becomes just unbelievably huge within their lifetime. So by the time that you know the original Knickerbockers were retired and were you know dying off, it was a professional sport that was just gone across the entire of you know continental America. It was played in towns. It was played in cities. It was played in the played in meadows all across you know by farmers. It was played by everyone. I think to, to really, the, the myth of Adam Doubleday you know, served an important purpose in helping create an America. And to unify and to bring people together, which is what baseball is, fundamentally what it is, that is its best. I mean, there are plenty of bad people in baseball. There are plenty of shameful moments, there are plenty of tragedies, there are outrages but when it is at its best it brings people together it it provides a link between the different strands of america i think one of my one of the reasons why i think the the, the story of the ball play fascinates me is that it m marries up to a form of sort of 
history in the sense that when you're a ball player what happens is is that you know you you might play little league when you're a kid or you you know you then play in high school now x amount of players get drafted straight out of high school and then then you they go to the minor leagues and then up to the the big leagues a certain amount of players what they will do is they'll play high school but then they'll go and do two three four years of college and then they'll be drafted by a major league team and again go into the minors and when you go into the minors it's essentially that the structure is you have single a double a triple a and then the big leagues and each time once you do well enough your organization your team will promote you but so the a is the lowest level of you know professional organized baseball and so you go there and it's always going to be a small town, very much in virtually anywhere across the continental United States. It could be in the West Coast, the East Coast, it could be in Florida, it could be in Texas, it could be in Kansas, Montana. It can be virtually anywhere, and it's going to be a small place. You're talking maybe, you know, the stadium will only hold maybe three, 4,000 people, and you generally don't get three, 4,000 people for single-A games. And then you go up to, you know, double-A and again, it's going to be you know a slightly bigger town, and then when you get to AAA, it's a um, a city, but it's it's always I think let's say if you take Boston for example, you go up to AAA Pawtucket, which is in you know Rhode Island, and it's just down the I ninety from Boston, but it's a relatively small city. It's not big. It's not a huge cultural center, and it's not a huge tourist destination. But then you get to the big city. So really, the journey of the ball player starts at retro america so all of these little places dotted all around that only a baseball fan will know it's not something that you the, the viewer listener at home will know any of these places or recognize them it's only when you get to the majors which is metro america it is big cities so you're talking new york boston chicago los angeles you know, houston all of these you know, major economic cities whereby if you play american football it doesn't have that same quality in american football you go you play at high school you then go to college and then you go if you get drafted you then go into the big leagues you you miss out you know you you miss retro america you don't go and play in the bus leagues and they call it the sally league it's called it's the um, south atlantic league it's basically that league is based entirely in the south so north carolina south carolina georgia and you travel by bus it's there's no planes involved and you just you get on the bus you eat on the bus and you travel overnight you know to the next town to play your games whereby in college if you're at the highest level in college you're traveling via plane so you're playing you know one week you'll be at the university of alabama and that's a 70 80,000 seat stadium you have the big house in michigan that's 107,000 seats all of it is broadcast on national television whereby in the minor leagues in baseball you're lucky if it's broadcast in the town itself let alone across the across the nation and it has that kind of link much in the same way that if you look at things like technology it's, I think one of my favourite sort of stories is about KMOX. It's a radio station out of St. Louis. And in the sort of 20s and 30s, it was really technology and radio was, was booming. And 
Kmox decides that they want to become a super station. So they put masks all across the sort of Midwest and they start broadcasting. Not just, you know, you'd always have, you know, when radio stations first came out, you'd broadcast on a fairly local basis. And they decided, they wanted to broadcast across the entire of the Midwest and parts of the South. It was a huge potential viewership. And a lot of these places were because the Midwest, they were not huge places. There wasn't a huge amount going on. And as it's out of St. Louis, they carry cardinal games on the radio and that's one of the first i mean originally the owners were were petrified at the idea of radio for them they made their money in the most simplest and easiest ways you can make money they put on baseball games people turned up paid their money at the thing and watched the game so the idea that you could have radio which would basically tell you the score and you'd listen in you wouldn't be paying virtually any money to the owners they thought that it would be terrible for profitability and for the game and that's where they made their money and eventually they got sort of talked around but then suddenly what that meant was is that you had just an unimaginably large audience of people all of whom were listening to cardinals baseball in other words you could virtually drive through three four five six states and never miss a moment of the game and and a lot of you what you also have to remember is, is that you think of the you know Think of Major League Baseball. You're talking 30 teams. But at that time, there was only maybe 14 teams, 12 teams. So there, you know, you, you, if you loved baseball, you often weren't anywhere near it, especially if you lived in the Midwest and the South. And so for just there are huge amounts of you know, Cardinal baseball fans dotted around places that are just you know, hours drive away from, from St. Louis itself their dad so in other words it's a family tradition in other words they grew up listening to cardinals baseball and then the fandom sort of carries on even to the sort of modern day and really what it also speaks to is also the the ensuing changes sort of demographically that happened in that period you had huge amounts of people because of this place because of the Great Depression. You also had, you know, people moving out west for opportunities, and for a lot of these people, they really did have all of their, you know, earth, you know, earthly belongings strapped to the back of the car, and they were really worried. And but they were listening to Cardinals baseball as they headed out west. The um, writer Hunter S. Thompson mentions it in one of his works about this sort of nerdy world character, you know, who was originally, you know, brought up in the South and eventually. You know, by hook or crook, they move across, you know, all these different states and all the rest of it. And eventually they get to California and there's just nowhere else to wander. They, you know, they see the Pacific Ocean. That's it. They have literally found home because there is nowhere else more to move. They, you know, they've you know, blundered their way out of the South. They've you know, not managed to have any success or any luck in the Midwest. And you end up out, you know, end up in California. And. You know, something like the Second World War, which a huge amount of jobs were created in California in terms of the war industry. And people moved there for the good jobs, good money, and also the lifestyle that came from it. And also, you know, in the, you know, in the Cold War, you had huge amounts of, you know, military spending on the South. And so there was lots of industries and army based, all of which that came out of that, and that helped build the Sun Belt, so you're talking about Arizona, New Mexico, and as a result, baseball ends up having to move out west as well. 
because to, to really to match up and that's where the, you get the sort of famous moment where the you know Brooklyn Dodgers move to Los Angeles and the New York Giants move to San Francisco so both of those teams had a huge rivalry in New York and they now have this huge rivalry that's kept on going even in California so whereby I was talking about earlier about the halcyon days of you know, the 1950s in New York baseball, where you had a situation where from the post-war years up until really the early 60s, the Yankees were phenomenally successful. They won more years than not. Virtually every single year they were in the World Series. And most of the time they were either playing the, the Dodgers or the Giants. And New York City was really the epicenter of baseball. And in some ways, it still it always has been, and maybe to an extent, always will be, because the Knickerbockers come out of New York City. You know, the Yankees become the real dominant team. It could have been the Boston Red Sox, but it isn't. It's New York. It's Babe Ruth. It's Yankee Stadium, and then you have you know obviously the Dodgers, and the Dodgers are the most I think magical of all teams. They're almost mythological, because. The way how the stadium is built is a, is a fantastic story. Essentially, Ebbett's family, they were quite wealthy, and the son decides that you know he wants to build a baseball stadium for his team that he's just purchased. I think they were at the time called the Brooklyn Robins. and But he can't, you know, because land is very scarce at this point in Brooklyn, and if people know what he's doing, the, the prices will go through the roof. So slowly but surely he builds, buys plots of land here, there, all under different names, different things, and eventually he gets enough, just a, just a small enough enough amount of land that he can build his stadium and knocks all the, the houses down and builds Ebbets Field. Now, essentially what you have is, is that the New York Yankees are right in the centre. They're in the Bronx. They're able to build this huge stadium in Yankee with Yankee Stadium, off of the back of, you know, the success of Babe Ruth, who becomes a, a national icon. And I'll, I'll talk about him in a little bit. Whereby the Brooklyn, it's the other side of the bridge. It's almost got a slight inferiority complex. It's very local, it's very tribal. And, you know, the, the, the they get named, renamed the Dodgers because their fans are, to get to the stadium, have to basically dodge the trolley buses that are all across Brooklyn going into New York. And... For years, they are at the bottom. They're still loved, but they're beloved in a way that a team that just doesn't win and always lets you down. And by the time you get to the late 40s, they start going on a run. They sign Jackie Robinson. Again, I'll talk about him later. But And they have this sort of great period of success. And this is a New York City that doesn't maybe exist today. The Brooklyn of the 40s and 50s is you have neighbourhoods and there people have lived there generation after generation and it's very tightly knit. Whereby, if you now talk about Brooklyn now, I mean, essentially, the, I was reading this thing a while ago about how really there's not that many New Yorkers in the sense that there are millions of people in New York, but a lot of them have come from the rest of the country that have moved to New York. So in other words, you don't have the situation which you had in the 40s, 50s, where generations had lived in virtually the same postage area. So the same the same blocks of city blocks, really. And so 
the relationship the Brooklyn Dodgers fans had with the players, because the players lived in that local area, was just huge. And it also spoke to their relationship with the city. In other words, New York City was where the glamour, Brooklyn wasn't, was far more, I don't want to say rustic, but it was far more earthy. It was far more down to earth. It was nowhere near as glamorous. And so the idea of our boys fighting against the you know, hated Yankees, who were always very successful and very popular across the nation, really made Brooklyn what it was. Put them on the map in, in that regard. And then you have so they had a, you know, the Giants that were in a different part of town. And this is a, a period of time when New York was very... You had, you had almost clear dividing lines. So in other words, if you lived in that neighbourhood, you were a Giants fan. If you lived in that neighbourhood, you were a Dodgers fan. If you lived... In that part of New York City, you'd be a Yankee fan. And, you know, the kind of tribal rivalries. I think probably the best way of comparing it is a bit like sort of the London football team. So, in other words, you know, different parts of North London, you're Spurs, different Arsenal, West Ham. And it's all inner rivalries for people that all have to live in the same city, work together. And the rivalry that comes from that, the sort of banter that comes from that. And so with the Dodgers, you have, they're called the Boys of Summer. There's a beautiful book that was written but with that title. And eventually they end up, you know, they, they lose a couple of times to Yankees. And finally, they beat the hated Yankees in the World Series. It's a huge parade because finally, they, 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 one of the nicknames for the, the Dodgers was Dem Bums. And it's finally a we win moment for you know, the entire, you know, the entire Brooklyn, they have a huge parade in Brooklyn, you know, ticker tape, millions of people, but it, it's fleeting, eventually, you know, the, the huge sort of changes that happened in New York City in the 50s, 60s and 70s, with the urban blight, with the crack epidemic, with the huge amount of movement from people from living in the inner city to living in the suburbs, means that it's fleeting. It wasn't what couldn't have possibly lasted. And obviously the owner then decides, I want to move to, you know, New York, so I can't rebuild the stadium, I can't rebuild Ebbets Field, there's not room in Brooklyn. And it's a hugely just an absolute gut punch for the people of Brooklyn is that they lose their team. Not just they lose their team, is that they lose their team to 3,000 miles away. And the same thing happens to the Giants. And But it, it it's also a part of American history in the sense of, well, that's where people were moving. People were moving to the, the West Coast. And baseball would have to do the same thing. And to really build baseball in any meaningful sense... These, pl- these teams did have to have a backstory and a rivalry. And one of the things is that the, the great broadcaster, Vin Scully, he'd only been working for the Brooklyn Dodgers for about two, three years, and he moves with the team. And the role he plays in the LA Dodgers is as a... He teaches the city of LA how to love baseball. And he's a link to that period of time in Brooklyn he's only you know recent you know, a couple of years ago fully retired and he for about 50 years he was just the Dodgers Brooklyn and LA in other words he knew Jackie Robinson he you know he was a contemporary and I think one of the interesting stories that it's kind of a secret one really it's so basically Dodger Stadium was built in a place called Chavez Ravine and for the stadium to be for the land, they had to evict a 
a small populace of Mexican-Americans. It was a Mexican-American neighbourhood, and to build this huge monolithic stadium, they had to get rid of them. And it was very painful moment. In other words, there was you know forcible demolitions, forcible removals, there was police. It was a very painful moment for that whole neighborhood. And as a result, for a lot of years, the sort of Latino population of LA didn't have much of a interest or much of a feeling for the Dodgers. And you know baseball has a huge part in Latino culture in Mexico and all across really, you know, Latin America and Central America. It wasn't really until the sort of 80s where um, Fernando Valenzuela comes through, he was signed for out of the Mexican leagues and he comes to play for the Dodgers and he makes his debut and he just has this fantastic sort of three, four month spell of just dominance. And as a result, the sort of wounds that had been, you know, made by the building of Dodger Stadium dissipated and he becomes a sort of a very much a, a folk hero for you know the population of you know Latin po- Latino population of LA and they become huge fans of the Dodgers and one of the, the sort of other greater stories of that is that you have a uh, broadcaster that does the games in Spanish and he helped you know he learned English off of listening to Vin Scully games and he's about the same sort of age and he's still doing the games and so it's fantastic that you have this wonderful mirror image of sort of Vin Scully you know telling these wonderful stories in just he was just a fantastic broadcaster if you ever get the chance to listen to him even read a shopping list I would highly recommend it and then that he helped then you know train a Spanish you know a Spanish speaking Latino broadcaster I mean when he first started he barely knew anything about baseball and then he does the exact same role for the Latino population it's a way of bringing people sort of together which is what I even if it comes out of you know this horrible moment when you know really a an entire community was forcibly removed just to build a stadium and you know this is the sort of early 50s it was not done in a you know kind and you know orderly fashion it was we're by, we have this land, you need to get off it now. And we will use the police, we will use whatever fact, you know, really displacing a population that didn't have a voice or a, or political power to stop, you know, the Dodgers and the city of LA from doing this. So really where I want to sort of take this podcast is, what I want the viewer to feel is that baseball is this thing that is, this entity that is alive and it has these fantastic stories but also how it impacts your life as an actual baseball fan because it very much it becomes an almost an illusion of family if you follow a baseball team properly not properly but if you're able to you know follow the team over a whole season you get to know the players and the managers better than you would any football team. In a football team, it's 38 games, they rock up at 3 o'clock, by 5 o'clock they're done. Yeah, you have press conferences and interviews, but it's kind of a, a strangely closeted world. You only ever get glimpses of behind the sort of curtain. So sometimes you hear about dressing room bust-ups or arguments on the training field, but you never really see it 
live and in person. It's always there's always an element of cloak and dagger about it, and it's only really maybe after the fact once the the player's been sold or you know, that the real or someone writes a book about it that you finally hear what really happens. Whereby in baseball, because of the structure of it, because you're playing 162 games over about 182 days, is that it's a day-to-day thing. In other words, and you have, uh, they're called beat reporters. They basically, their job is to follow the team around and just chronicle them. So as a result, these are people that are on the same flights as the players. They're on the same buses. They spend just as much time with the ball players, probably even actually just massively large amounts more than they do their families. So as a result, the, the relationship is a lot closer. It's it's more intimate. So in other words, when someone's unhappy, you find out about it because there is someone in the clubhouse talking to them. And as a result, you get more of a sense of the player. In other words, why they have every single year they have the Hall of Fame induction in Cooperstown, New York. And the baseball Hall of Fame. It it's one that it's the it was the first American sport that had a Hall of Fame, and it's really the gold standard. I mean, yes, the the NFL Hall of Fame, the NBA, like it's all very important, but it doesn't have the same cultural cachet, in the sense that people have arguments about the baseball Hall of Fame that just last for years and years and years. The football Hall of Fame. It's kind of a big hall. In other words, they put lots of players in. And it's it's a great honour, but it's not battled over with the same amount of argument and passion that baseball, the Hall of Fame is. Because it's the first one. It's, in effect, the gold standard because it was there first. In other words, the first induction class, I believe, is in 1933. And it's Babe Ruth, Ty Cobb. So in other words, the legends that were put in there, the legends that really made professional baseball what it was, were able to get in there. So the first induction class of about five, six players is just a a brilliant list. Whereby by the time you get to sort of the by the time they incorporate the Hall of Fame in football, it's not quite the same thing. It's not got the same historical importance to it. It's just it's just that the NFL has a Hall of Fame because baseball has a Hall of Fame. So really, what you get is is that so every year the players get inducted, and thousands of people, regardless of where the the player played the majority of his games, these people will just travel from Houston, LA, wherever the player played the most amount of his games, where he really made his name, will come and they will fill out this field and just sit in just blisteringly hot. Yeah, upstate New York weather and watch a player in a suit give a speech. Because these players have, the fans have grown up with these players. Because to really to get into the Hall of Fame, you need to play 15, 20 years. And a lot of the time, if you really want to get into the Hall of Fame, you almost need, it's almost a prerequisite that you played many years in the same place. And so as a result, you've seen them when they were skinny, sort of, you know, early 20s, when they first break into the big leagues. You're there, you know, you maybe go through college when they're at their peak. And when you start to, you know, settle down and have kids, that's when they're just, you know, trying to hang on and just keep, you know, turning up to the ballpark and keep getting paid to do it. And then when they're, you know, at the Hall of Fame being inducted, 
you might be there with your kids explaining to them about the you know how that player made you feel. It's that kind of relationship, and also the way how it fits into the seasons. So in other words, what you get is is that really the the baseball season starts, I suppose, just before Christmas. You kind of have the first few free agent signings for the next season. And that's when you're hopeful. That's when you you know your team might have spent some money on a great player. You might have made a trade, and you've got some hope. And so you have the sort of dark, horrible days of winter when it feels like it will never end. It's raining. It's wet. It's cold. It's miserable. It's dark. And then right about Valentine's Day, pitchers and catchers report. So they're off in Florida and they're off in Arizona where it's not cloud in the sky. And all it is for the first few days is just pitchers just lobbing the ball and catchers behind the plate catching the ball and throwing it back. It's nothing special, but it's that hope that it's now going, you know, summer is on its way. And then you have, you know, the... You have spring training, which is basically, you know, you play lots of games. It's And it's... All you have is is you have the your regular players, your starters, and they're all just trying to you know just get in shape for the season. But then you have these whole other bunch of players from your minor league system. They're all young kids, and they're all just desperate to make the club. They're just they all want to have their moment in of glory. And it's so it's it's I suppose analogous to like county cricket. So in other words, you've got because it's played in Florida and Arizona. There's huge amounts of you know, retirees. So you get the, the same sort of vibe that you get at county games, is that, you know, a lot of people with the same faces, you know, going to the same games in the same sort of these oldie-worldy stadiums that, you know, Babe Ruth played in when he was, you know, doing spring training in the 1920s and 30s. And it's that kind of... You're seeing the same people talking to their friends. It, it has that wonderful feel and they're just watching the next generation just trying to make an impact trying to make the club and trying to have their you know moment of glory in the majors and then finally you have opening day in april and that's when all your hopes and dreams for the season begin you know open opening day has this wonderful special moment because you know it's your best starter will you know pitch the game all of your best players are on it's an honor to start opening day and then just, you know, you have this long summer and it's warm and you watch the games and you you hope that your team gets a good start. And then you kind of get to these sort of your dog days or somewhere it's, you know, the kids are off school and your team has a chance. And you've got the trade deadline at 31st of July. And that's when you, you, you stock up, you get as many good players as you possibly can from some of the poorer clubs who aren't doing as well. Not poor as in economically, but the teams at the bottom of the league who are just trying to rebuild for next year, they'll let sell some of their, you know, they'll trade some of their better relievers and hitters. So you're trying to strengthen your team for the stretch run, which is August and September. And that's when the real money part of the season begins. It's when you have that chance to get into the playoffs and the playoffs are, are sort of done in October. That's when, and yeah, the nights are starting to creep in, but that's when it's the culmination and you finally get to the World Series. So you've had, you know, the playoff series and it's, a playoff game is simply 
three hours or three to four hours of barely being able to breathe because of the nerves. It's you know it starts off as best of five and then goes up to best of seven and finally you know right about the you know mid to late part of October you finally have the World Series. Best team from the National League, the best team from the American League, facing off against each other. Best of seven games, and. And by playing so many games, so 161 games, and that's not really even counting the sort of 20 or 30, you know, spring training games, and not count, you know, and adding, then you have to then add in the playoff series, so, which is, you know, another 15, 20 games. It, but they're there every single day. In other words, you know, and being a, a British baseball fan, because the vast majority of the games are played at 7 o'clock Eastern time, which is midnight our time. Which means that it's a lot of waking up in the morning and checking the scores, checking the standings. Even if you're a, a casual baseball fan, what I'd always say is just pick a team and then try and follow them for a couple of weeks. And that just all you'd have to do is just check the, the score. Because one of the things that I think one of my favourite baseball memories of all time wasn't when I was actually watching that much baseball. I was doing my A-levels and... Exams were just sort of stressful period, and but the Red Sox went on this fantastical run. It was I think they won twelve out of thirteen games. So every single day when I'm you know nervous, rocking up for this exam, I just would check the score in the morning, and the Red Sox were kicking ass. And then I, it helped me think, well, okay, if the team are doing well, I'll do well. It's that kind of even if it's just a momentary moment when you just check the score and you're happy that your team have won and that they're and the standings are, at first glance, if you were to look at the standings, it would look quite confusing. But once you have a sort of a little bit of a, an idea of it, what you have is, it's wonderfully beguiling. Because what it is, is that, so you have your division. So, essentially, the, let me just explain it in the most simplest way. Is that you have 30 teams and they're split up into two different leagues. The American League and the National League. Both have 15 teams in it. And of those 15 teams, they're cut into three different divisions. So the East, the Central, and the West, done geographically. And essentially what you get is that the teams that win their division go into the playoffs, and the two next best teams by record play off in a wildcard game to then play into the playoffs. But So the way how they do it is just game, one and loss record. And how many games you're behind. So in other words, if your team is, you know, 70 and 60 and the team chasing you is 65 and 55, they're five games behind. So in other words, each day the you know standings get changed by who's won, who's lost, and which is where you get pennant fever. Pennant fever is a fascinating thing, is that you you might be 10 games up going into September. And so you think... Even if we lost nine games, you know, more than the Oppo, as long as they don't win all of their games, we'd still get into the playoffs. But each day it goes up and down. And there's nothing worse than having your whole season, all of the, I suppose, the emotions of having a great season. And this happened to the Red Sox in um, 2011. 
They started 2-12 and 12 and Boston was just exploding in rage because you know, they'd put all of the, they'd made some free agent signings. This was supposed to be the year that they had a great shot of going to the World Series. And from that 2-12 and 12 start, they had about four months where they played the most fantastic baseball. So get going into September, they were absolutely primed. All they would need is barely just to win as many games as they lost and they would quite comfortably stroll into the playoffs. And the only way that they could possibly miss the playoffs... At this point, they had a playoff expectancy, mathematically, of about 99%. So, in other words, if you ran it a thousand times, 990 times, they would have qualified for the playoffs. The only way that they could possibly miss out on the playoffs is if they had a terrible month and the team below them, the Tampa Bay Rays, won out. And just literally won, won, and won. And that's what happened. It came down to the final game of the season. And all the Red Sox had to do was beat you know, the Baltimore Orioles, who were just terrible. They were just a bottom-feeding team the entire year. And they were guaranteed the playoffs. They were even guaranteed that they lost. And the Yankees, you know, who were also a fantastic team, beat the Rays. And it went down to the last inning. The Tampa Bay scored and won. The Red Sox lost, and it was just devastating. In other words, they essentially there was two different Boston teams. There was the team of the first half of first half of the first month of the season, and the last month who were terrible, and this other team that were just brilliant. But it was the slow motion car crash nature of it. Is that each day you'd see another loss, and that the it, so it went from ten games to nine to seven to six, and each time that you. If we won and they'd lost and you've made another game back. It's that kind of moment and how it follows a whole year. And how, you know, when the you know, when you're just starting to think about Christmas, that's when baseball is, you know, reaching its apex. And you you know, cold nights of staying up watching playoff baseball. And then you get the wonderful moments when it's sort of March and you're watching, you know, uh, you know, just minor leaguers playing, just trying to make the team, and you've got the whole summer to look forward to, and it happens every single year on the same dates, the same times, and as a result, it becomes, you know, really, you know, just part of your life. In other words, you you start to see, in effect, you start to really relate to the players in in a slightly different way than you do in. You know, football is that you know you can understand how the journeyman player who's in their early thirties, who's you know, declined, who's and they're just desperate to you know keep playing baseball. So they might get released, and then they'll sign for a different team's minor league team, just so that if they can get one sort of hot streak going, that they can then get back to the big leagues because they're just looking to play out the string just to keep going to the ballpark and keep getting paid paid to do so and but then you can also relate to the young player who's you know desperate to make an impression because it's part of your life in other words you know I can remember you know how I felt going to uni and, and you know watching baseball at uni and you know being able to relate to some of the younger players coming through because that's how I felt at the time much in the same way now that you know I'm a little bit older that you know, I can sort of relate to the, you know, there's these wonderful stories of these sort of minor league players and 
they, they play in 20 or 30 different places. So all across the continental United States. It's a bit like that uh, Johnny Cash song, I've played everywhere. And, they, you know, in the miners you get paid terrible wages. You know, it's tough. It's lots of travelling. It's lots of time away from your family. But you're just holding on to that one dream, that one moment that finally, you know, you, that you might get noticed by a scout and that you might get signed. And then you you called up to the bigs. You 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 know you get on a plane or a car and you drive there and you have this these huge stadiums with you know, names that you, you know that are just synonymous across America. Yankee Stadium, Fenway, Wrigley Field, Dodger Stadium, and then you're you know you're there and you just have a chance just as much as anybody else who's ever wanted to have their dream come true, and that's something that baseball offers it's always there you can all one of the things that is great about it is that you can just stick it on in the background it's always going to be there you know nobody not even the most diehard watches a 162 game season it isn't possible you know with the time differences even if you live you know you live in america if you go out onto the west coast the games and you're on the east coast the games start at 10 o'clock but yeah the games last three plus hours yeah you can't on a school night legitimately stay up till 1am to watch the game and you do, you know you have you know weddings you have you know family trips you can't watch every single game but it's always there and it's always something that you can put on in the background and just no matter if your day's been awful if your day's been great it's just a moment where you can just relax and and just let yourself be taken to a place where it's always sunny, where the grass is green and your team have just as much chance. It doesn't matter whether you've lost the last nine games in a row. The score gets reset every single day and your team have a chance. Even if your team are going to lose 100 games, they still win 60. The best team can lose to the worst team. And even the smallest you know, franchises have had moments of glory. And there's always that fleeting moment where you could watch something that's never happened before. No matter how many thousands of games they played, you could see something amazing even in the most mundane of games. Thank you for listening.